Open with me, if you would, in your copy of God's Word to Psalm 27. If you're just joining us for the first time this week, we're going through a summer in the Psalms, and so using a selection of different Psalms to hit different genres and preach through them. Psalm 27, hear now as I read God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who will stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Thus far, God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Our God, we do ask that as we come to your word, that you would speak through it, that the words of my mouth and the medita meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, in 2 Kings chapter 6, one of my favorite uh, historical accounts takes place. The prophet Elisha is able to prophesy and tell the nation of Israel where Syria is going to attack. So Israel keeps avoiding, avoiding Syria's attacks. And the king of Syria is like, what's going on? How is Israel continuing to escape? And his counselors tell him, well, there's this prophet in Israel, Elisha, and he knows what you're saying in your bedroom. And so the king of Syria is like, well, let's get him. Where's he at? I say, well, he's in Dothan, not Dothan, Alabama. He's in Dothan. Let's go get Elisha. So in 2 Kings 6, the king of Syria sends horses, chariots, a great army. They come at night and surround the city. And when the servant of the man of God, so the servants of Elisha, the servants of Elisha rise up, they look outside, and behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servants said, alas, my master, what shall we do? And I love this, what Elisha says, do not be afraid, 
For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. What are you talking about, Elisha? Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes so that he may see. So Elisha asks for his servant's eyes to be opened. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire. So this is not the Syrian army. This is an angel army that was unseen by the servant. But then Elisha asked God to open the servant's eyes, and he sees an army of fiery chariots surrounding Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. We don't have this kind of sight in our capability on a regular basis or at all. But I want you to realize the reality, the reality that's expressed in that story, in that narrative of 2 Kings 6, exists right now. All around us is a protecting, massive, heavenly host conducting spiritual warfare on our behalf. I want us to know that this is true and that this protecting army, not just the army, but that there is a protecting person, the Holy Spirit, who dwells within us. And with that confidence, we can then go in confidence to God in prayer. And so as we move through this passage today, that's what I want you to see, is that the Christian can confidently cry out to God because God will protect us so that we dwell safely in his temple. The Christian can confidently cry out to God because God will protect us so that we dwell safely in his temple. The first thing that we see in verses 1 to 3 is that the Lord is a protecting light. The Lord is my light and my salvation. He's also a stronghold. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? This is all verse 1. I grew up in a small farm town in St. Rose, Illinois, the cornfields of southern Illinois, and we had a, a basement. And so the basement, being underground, it didn't have any egress to the outside except, you know, the, the little safety exit window. But when I would walk downstairs as a kid and it was dark, even though I knew, and you've had this experience, you know nothing's down there, but you're scared. There's something unsettling, right? until you turn on the light. Even though you know nothing's down there, it's still unsettling. And what David is saying here is that that darkness that would be fearful is dispelled because the Lord is light. It shows him the way. It dispels the darkness. Now, it's not just some sort of um, amorphous concept like, oh, the Lord is light as, as you know, a physical light, like a light bulb, but think about who the light is. Who is the light? Who is David talking about? What does Jesus say in John chapter 8? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You see, what David is speaking about is not simply an amorphous concept of light, but actually a person that he's looking forward to, that is 
the light of the world. That is a stronghold. And so I want you to realize the basis of David's fearlessness is eternal life in Jesus. Now, David doesn't presumably know the name Jesus, right? But he knows the Savior is coming. He knows that he is Yahweh in the first verse. Yahweh is my light and my salvation. And Jesus echoes that whenever he says, I am. Remember, Yahweh means I am. And Jesus says in John, I am the light of the world. You know, it's as if Jesus is saying, you know all those things that the Old Testament spoke about? Remember whenever David said, the Lord is my light? I am the light of the world, Jesus says in John 8. And so realize, the basis of our fearlessness is because we have eternal life in Christ. The Lord is my helper. What can man do to me? That's repeated in the Psalms. It's repeated in Hebrews. Now, it's very easy to be like, well, I don't have anything to be afraid of because I have eternal life. Well, whenever people actually come after you or people are assaulting you, you're threatened with fear, right? (laughs) But there is a basis rooted in Jesus Christ Our fearlessness is because we have eternal life in him. What can man do to me? But now secondly, if you don't have this eternal life in Christ, if you don't believe in the light who dispels darkness, you don't have a basis for fearlessness. What does verse 2 say? When evildoers assail me to eat of my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it is they who stumble and fall. If you don't have the light that is Jesus Christ, you will stumble and fall. Do you have an arm like God's? Can your voice thunder like his? David is saying when anybody comes up against Yahweh, they will stumble and fall. You need fearlessness rooted in Jesus Christ by faith in him. Well, David has a confidence, not only for deliverance, though an army encamp against me, I thought about 2 Kings 6 whenever I read that, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear, because David knows there is a protection bigger than himself around him. But David has this confidence for deliverance, not only for deliverance, but for dwelling in God's temple. And that's what we see secondly, dwelling in his temple from verses 4 to 6. One thing I have asked for that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Don't you think it's interesting that David doesn't say, one thing I've asked for, eternal life. One thing I've asked for, to be delivered from the wrath of God. The one thing David asks for is to dwell with God here. Those other things like eternal life, deliverance from God's wrath, you could call fringe benefits, okay? The real benefit is God himself. Whenever you apply for a job, you know, the job comes with a salary package, and the main thing you want is the job, you know, the the pay that comes with your labor or for your labor. But that job comes with fringe benefits. These are other things that will add in to your salary. 
the real thing that we seek, the real thing that we want is God and to dwell with him. That is what we want. Eternal life, deliverance from the wrath of God are fringe benefits. They come with the person who is the real benefit, that is God. And so remember this, don't separate Christ from his benefits. You don't simply want eternal life, comfort, joy, um, to be changed. Those things come added along with the real benefit that is Christ himself. If you want just the benefits without Christ, that is something that is inseparable. Christ comes with the benefits. You get Christ first, you get everything else added on with it. Okay? So our desire is not simply for the benefits of Christ or God, but God himself to dwell with him. That's what David wants. He is delivered in order to dwell. Well, if you look in verses 4, 5, and 6, verses 4 and 6 are worship. And verse 5 in the middle is like deliverance from enemies. And so worship, deliverance, worship. Look at what he says in verse 4, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. And in verse 6, I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. David is delivered from his enemies in the midst of worship. I'm praying. I'm being delivered from my enemies. I'm offering sacrifices. Now, David has a real physical enemy that is after him, right? And I don't intend to over-spiritualize the text here and just say that, oh, we don't have any physical enemies. But we have this advantage in going through multiple psalms. We can talk about the real physical enemies that we have that are in the world. Uh, We can talk about their speech. We can talk about how they do pursue and persecute the church. But I want us to remember and, and just be reminded at this point here of the enemy that we have that is spiritual. The world and the devil surround you with temptations. You carry one of your own worst enemies with you, your own flesh, right? And what I want us to be reminded of here is that we are delivered from our enemy of sin in the midst of worship. David is delivered from his enemy in the midst of worship, and we experience the same thing. We are being delivered from our sins in corporate worship. That's what happens in here. That's why this is important, why we come to sing, why we come to hear. Last week, whenever uh, Chad Montgomery preached the sermon on Psalm 88, were you impacted? I was. We were being delivered from our sin in the midst of corporate worship, in the midst of preaching. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, it pleased God. So the world doesn't know him in its wisdom. So it pleased God in his wisdom to save those who believe through the foolishness of preaching, through the foolishness of what we preach. Worship, preaching, the word, sacraments, and prayer, I want us to be reminded this is the thing that we call, the, those things we call the ordinary means of grace. We throw around that term a lot, ordinary means of grace. What does that 
mean? <laughs> it is the normal way in which God saves and changes his people. The ordinary way, the ordinary means of unmerited favor. Whenever we hear the word, it is his unmerited favor that is normally working through that preaching to change somebody. Whenever we participate in the sacrament later, it is one way in which God normally, ordinarily changes his people. Whenever we pray, that is the normal way in which God changes his people. That's why we have to be here, because we are changed in worship, both initially in the sense of the first time that we are saved in justification, and as we are continually saved from our sins. I mean, David is a believer here, but David still needs saving from the power of his enemies. We still need saving from the power of sin that is in our life. That happens here not just here, but as a focal point, the ordinary means of grace in this corporate setting, it happens here. Well, because this is the way God works, it prompts David to use the or an ordinary means of grace, prayer. So notice in the first portion of the psalm that we've gone through, David is describing God. He's describing his own situation. He's describing God. And then verses 7 to almost all the way to the end, 7 to 12, it turns into petition. It turns into prayer. And he prays in confidence. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. Now, I want us, as we look at this section, to take away some principles of David's prayer for principles in our own prayer. What does David say? He repeats what God has commanded. You have said, seek my face, verse 8. He repeats what God commands, and then David himself says, you've commanded me to seek after you. Lord, I'm seeking you with all my heart. Repeat what God commands in his prayer. He reminds God, well, we don't remind God. You could say that he declares to God his promises, what he's promised. And, and when we declare to God what he's promised, we remind ourselves of the promise and give ourselves confidence. So what does David do? Cast me not off, forsake me not. You know, God has promised. What did he say in Jeremiah 29? You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Deuteronomy 31, the Lord will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. David knows these things have been, well, he doesn't know Jeremiah yet, but he knows from Deuteronomy, the Lord will not leave him or forsake him. But David still repeats that character of God, his faithfulness, that he will never forsake him. And so whenever we pray our prayers, repeat what God has commanded, repeat his attributes, and in doing so, it reminds us of his character, of what he's promised, and we are changed through our prayers. Not only, do, not only does God respond to do something in prayer, but we ourselves are changed in prayer. And isn't that also what David even asks? We don't just ask for God to do something. We ask for God to do something to us. Verse 11, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Even in the midst of enemies, in the midst of these tough circumstances, Lord, change me. 
I quoted Jeremiah 29 earlier. Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me. You seek me with all your heart. That's right after they get back from being exiled. They've been exiled in Babylon for a long time, and they finally get back. And God says, when you seek me, you will find me. They were in a tough circumstance, right? But God makes a promise, and God promises to change. And David says, God, change me, teach me through this. So in prayer, repeat what God has commanded. Declare what God has promised in order to remind yourself of his character, of what he has said, and ask not only for him to change circumstances surrounding you, but ask him to change you. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Our prayer should be as much or more about God changing you as it is about changing things around you. Teach me to love you through this. Teach me to be a faithful witness in this thing that's happening to me. Lord, enable my speech to be, to be seasoned and salted with the gospel so that people hear that as I'm going through this, that they would hear and a faithful witness to Christ. That's the tone of our prayers. That's the tone of David's prayer. Teach me your way, O Lord. Well, having this confidence in God's character and in God's answer, it gives David confidence in the future that waits. And that's what I want you to see lastly. David has confidence in the future that waits. So he's declared indicatives. He's de declared things about God and himself in the first section. He's transitioned to petition in 7 to 12. And in verse 13 and 14, he expresses the confidence in the future. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord and be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. What does David mean when he says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living? Well, if you read Bible commentaries on this verse, you've got some guys who are saying, well, David's talking about his life, that, his, that he will see God's answer and goodness as he is alive. And that's true. Other guys will say, well, David is looking forward into the resurrection. He will see the goodness of the Lord in that future land of the living. Well, I want to propose to you that they're both part of the same thing. Eternal life in the land of the living starts now. And David witnessed the goodness of the Lord in his deliverance. I mean, if David dies, Christ does not come. God has made a promise to David, one of your descendants, speaking of the Messiah, will sit on the throne forever. David knows that has to come to pass. He knows that his son, who is Solomon, will have to be on the throne, not Absalom, not someone else. I will see God's goodness in the land of the living. But David also knows that he will see God's goodness in the resurrection. It's David that Jesus is quoting whenever, whenever excuse me, it's David that Paul is quoting whenever he's speaking, or it's Peter, sorry, speaking about the resurrection of Christ in his sermon. Peter is quoting from Psalm 16, you will not abandon your servant to the grave. And Peter says, brothers, 
David's been dead and buried for a long time. What's David talking about? You will not abandon your, soul, your servant to the grave. It is a Christ prophecy that he would not be abandoned to the grave, that he would be raised, and so would everybody else who is in him be raised. David sees the goodness of God in the land of the living when he is alive and in his state of death and separation from his body, and he looks forward to it in the resurrection. All of that is connected. His goodness now, his goodness when we part with our body, if we die before Christ returns, and his goodness as we look forward to the resurrection. And so because of that, we have confidence. Confidence, confidence in prayer. I will see the goodness of the Lord. Confidence in prayer is not based upon the category of response. It is based upon the character of God. So the category of response to prayer, God's answer to your prayer could be to bring you a sorrowful trial, to bring you a great joy. But how can we say, I will see the goodness of the Lord in this response? Because it's rooted in his character, not in the category of response. His character drives the answer, and it could be a joyful or a sorrowful providence. But when we say, Lord, you are my light, you're my salvation, you're my stronghold, you've promised not to lead us, or you've promised not to forsake us, you've promised to teach us, you've promised to be our light, and so, Lord, I have confidence in your goodness no matter what the category of response to this prayer is. I will see your goodness in the land of the living. And so David concludes, therefore, wait for the Lord and be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord with confidence and courage. Speaking of waiting for the Lord and his response to prayer, I might have shared this story with some individuals. I don't think the, the broader church has heard it yet, but a few years ago, I met PCA Army Chaplain Jason Strong. Jason Strong's ancestor was John Strong. Why did, why did names matter? Why mention names? John Strong was one of the founding elders of the First Church of Northampton, Massachusetts. That church eventually, after a couple of initial ministers, uh, they would call the minister, he would depart, or I think he passed away. Eventually they would call Stoddard, and then Stoddard's grandson would be called. Jonathan Edwards. So John Strong is a founding elder at the First Church of Northampton in six, he's a colonist and Puritan. This is 16, uh, 1621, 1661. 1661. So 360 years ago, John Strong, one of the founding members, and because of the prominence of the church, Jonathan Edwards, the records of the prayers of the elders are still in existence. So that the prominence of the church led to good record keeping, and we keep everything about this church. So here I am talking to Jason Strong, Chaplain Jason Strong, PCA Minister of the Gospel, and he tells me, John Strong prayed that his descendants would be ministers of the gospel. 360 years earlier, I am so myopic, 
I forget that God will answer prayer after I die. I just think that I have to see it here and now and forget that God will answer a prayer after I'm gone. And so I was there talking to Jason Strong, witnessing God's goodness in the land of the living. And John Strong was in heaven, having his prayer answered on earth, experiencing goodness in the land of the living. Right? God answers prayer in a far more brilliant and magnificent way than we could think or anticipate. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Let's pray. Our God, we do thank you for the many testimonies to your saving grace that you are our light, that Jesus Christ himself is the light of the world, and for all those who have faith in him, have a fearlessness and a courage and a confidence in your goodness, no matter what comes our way, we know that you are our stronghold. Lord, we do ask and pray that you would change us through our prayers, change us through the providential things that you bring into our lives, change us in worship, that as we sing to you, as we hear your word, that it would chisel away at the stone, that it would burn away the dross and refine the gold, because we ask in Jesus' name, amen.